Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Katamaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 42. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft weeks went, thank our patrons, card of the week, seven-win run breakdown, our main topic, conceding too early, and we're going to review a draft. So let's begin, Hats. How was your draft week? Uh, it was pretty good. Some up, some down, but uh, I am pretty happy with how things are going most of the time. Uh, <laughs> I, I got a little... I got a little overconfident today uh, and and drafted a deck with two reality breakers in it uh, and and also two sky horror draconises and I think that's that's a little greedy maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it was working out okay actually uh, I think I got four wins out of the thing and the problem didn't turn out that my curve was too high I put twenty power in there and just like. Uh, assumed that that would be okay. The problem was that I didn't draw either one of my reality breakers often enough. That was <laughs> that was what sunk the deck. <laughs> there were many. There were all of my losses. If I had just drawn a reality breaker, I would have had the power to play it, and it would have wiped my opponent's board. Uh, the problem was that I my finishers never showed up. So mm. uh, it was it was fun. I was <laughs> it was a fun deck that didn't get the that didn't succeed the way it deserved to. Uh, but I've done well enough otherwise that I'm still, you know, doing doing well in the rankings and holding my own and punching at or above my weight or all of those things that one would like to do if one plays competitive Hearthstone. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Eternal. <laughs> one plays competitive Eternal. <laughs> it's like Xerox. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the Xerox of card games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I did think about you last week because it seems like Elder Scrolls Legends is no more, more or less. Yeah, they, they shut it down. They're not making new cards now. I don't know exactly the terms. I just saw that it was uh, entering a new state of, of not being supported anymore. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. I like there was that was only a matter of time. They brought in people who weren't passionate about it to develop it, you know? Like what are you going to do? They they took they took like people whose lives are card games, you know, Direwolf off of the project and brought in some like random people who are just sort of generic video game developers. And I may be being very unfair to them. I haven't done research into who they are. They could may very well be passionate card game players, but that wasn't the impression that I got when I when I saw the news, which is why I quit. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, not a huge shock that it kind of went like that, it, that. That it's that it's not work working out anymore for them. Yeah, I imagine there's other people who quit uh, when Direwolf quit. Maybe not because Direwolf quit, but because maybe the next expansion was not fun because there yeah. wasn't the same thought and care that put into it that that Direwolf was putting into it. It was a really good game when Direwolf was developing it. Like all of the things that that Hearthstone had a problem with were kind of fixed and 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 smoothed over and developed into really interesting mechanics and it was a great Hearthstone alternative. Sad, sad, sad. <laughs> so how was your draft week? My draft week was pretty good. I um I went on a bit of a a hot streak and so I got I've 
got to the highest rank that I've ever gotten before. I I graced rank seventeen for Ooh. for a moment. Yeah, pretty uh-huh. good. Yeah, so that was pretty good. And then I was like, well, I don't know if I should draft anymore. Yeah, but, that's how it feels. <laughs> uh, but then I got I got knocked out of the top twenty. So then I was like, oh, I can draft again. So I haven't I haven't been I only played a draft or two after I got to rank seventeen. So I'm now in the mid twenties because um, I haven't been getting seven wins every time. <laughs> again, we kind of talked about it last week. I have not been minding the change, whatever they've been to the draft queues. I, for me personally, I really don't mind losing two ranks, gaining two ranks, losing two ranks, gaining two ranks, or whatever. It feels better than... Instead of just losing, like, a huge batch of ranks like it was? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not 100% convinced that there's a huge difference, but it, it feels like there, there might be a little bit. Mm-hmm. It feels it feels a little more stable, uh, which is not much, which is not great for people who want to who want to be able to climb uh, quickly like they used to be able to. Like uh, it used to be possible to just go from rank like 100 or something uh, up to rank 15 or so in a matter of a couple of drafts. I know because I've done it and mm-hmm. I don't think that's possible anymore. So people who want to do that are kind of out of luck yeah and i don't know that's not nece- so it's not necessarily all upside but i like i like the rankings being more stable for sure yeah and then so it's uh, like i said i just had a, a good week it's been a lot yeah. of fun we're both in a very healthy eternal place I did want to talk to you offline i just like feel like i don't understand what these <laughs> the rankings mean it's just like uh-huh. the rankings just seem like they can't correlate to how good a player <laughs> anyone oh. well that's not i mean that's not necessarily what they're for so this has been a problem with uh with any game with a lot a lot of variants is they essentially use i'm assuming that they are doing what a lot of games do and using because magic did this um they use chess ranking rules right yeah so you win or lose ranking points which are invisible and eternal, you win or lose ranking points, uh, more or less, depending on what you, who your opponent is. And that makes a lot of sense in chess, where there's no luck whatsoever, and you can consistently, nearly 100% of the time, win against somebody who's significantly worse than you. But in Magic and Eternal, then you can pretty easily lose against somebody that's much worse than you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, uh, so it doesn't, it's never a very accurate rating but I guess if you play a lot of games, it'll you'll tend to end up in the same general spots, right? Uh, but but uh, that's what annoys me about the ranking being invisible is that you I don't see I don't see any reason for it to be like the ranking is just sort of like hey this is how good everyone is but that's not what it means it means whatever your current score is compared to whatever any, everybody else's current score is. You don't see what the gaps are between you and the next person up or the next person down. You don't know, uh, you know, like percent. You don't even know, like if there was a curve, like a bell curve of like how well people are doing. You wouldn't even really know where you were on it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I wish they were a lot more transparent about how the rankings work. Yeah, I guess maybe part of my problem is since I have no conception about how many people are really tryharding draft. 
But I just like feel like I can't possibly be in like the top hundred best draft players in Eternal. Well, I mean, you <laughs> might be underrating your skills. Uh, that's a, another thing that might be happening here. Like maybe you just are now. But there's definitely good players that haven't put in the time to get mm-hmm. to Masters, and so we don't know how they would be ranked. And yeah. there's people who are in like pockets of bad variants or whatever that aren't uh, that aren't in the very top. Um, right. And a lot of it is how much time people have been putting in. Like you and I have probably put in quite a bit of time in Eternal this month, and so that's part of why it's reflected in, in us having good scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always going to be a factor. But I definitely play against people who are like bronze and and clearly know what they're doing. Um, yeah. And, and it's like maybe they just sort of draft as a hobby and they know what they're doing because they've drafted magic or they or just this is a month where they haven't done a lot of it and, and, or whatever. So, But as far as people who are in Masters, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's loosely representative of how skilled people are, but there's there I see people in the like who are down in the 90s or whatever that I've seen in the top 10 before and they're just having a bad month you know <laughs> like yeah. they're capable like raven dragon is capable of being number 1 clearly because she's done it a couple of times yeah exactly or like yeah you see people like cosmos he's like the example of people always use for like a, a volume drafter that sort of shoots all around the yeah. master ranks and it's just like it's hard to know what these rankings tell you or like, yeah, what they equate to. Except how just you just happen to, to... What? Sorry, it just, it just equates to feeling good. <laughs> yeah. Feeling good or feeling bad. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, I don't. Yeah. No. In terms of substantial like meaning, no, it doesn't mean much. But they give you more. You give, they give you more of those sweet, sweet tournament points. I know. I got I to gotta get into top 20, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my goal is my goal is to be in top twenty each time <laughs> and see what happens. And I can do it. Yeah. I know it. If I don't like get burnt out and stop playing. No, I know I know it's possible. Yeah. Well you're not allowed to get burnt out now anyway, so Yeah, no, I know. That's... I wanna enjoy other video games sometimes though. I always feel when I'm like when I'm playing something else, oh I should be playing Eternal and yeah, gathering thoughts. <laughs> part of your con- contractual commitment to this show Mm -hmm. you didn't read the Uh, fine print no no i didn't sign anything either so (laughs) yeah it was a verbal agreement right right the fine print in the verbal agreement when you were like whispering (laughs) under your breath that was when the camera cut out onto our patreon plug which you can check out at patreon.com slash farming eternal so the patreon is sort of a place where people can chip in just a a dollar even a dollar a month to help support the show. Uh, We did set some new stretch goals that we've been talking about. At $50, we have our live show. $75, we raffle off a coaching session. The top 20 ranked player for the next nine months, he's committed. (laughs) I'm I'm required to be in the top 20 in draft (laughs) if I want to keep doing the podcast. Yeah. I'm being held hostage. And yeah, so for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our show notes, recording bloopers, and help us towards these Patreon goals. Um, So right now we're at, I think we're still around $45. So we just need a couple more people to contribute. You can, of course, contribute more than a dollar a month, but even a dollar would help a lot. And so each week we thank our patrons. So thank you to Big Salty, Titus and Blossom, 
Parmalee, Tokut, Darth Herman II, Twin Hex, Cassandrith, Jed the Homerid, Raven Dragon, Esrich0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Mistow. Uh, we really appreciate the support. Okay, so now on to Card of the Week. Hats, what's your Card of the Week? My Card of the Week is Unkindness. Uh, Unkindness is a cursed relic. It is. It costs two shadow, and it uh, it goes on the enemy player, and uh, let's see... Um, at the end of their turn, if they did not play a unit, the, the relic destroys itself and creates three 1-1 one, one flying ravens. Um, I made this my card of the week because I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> I think it's one of the worst designed cards for limited I've ever seen. Um, I will play it because it is a fitfully strong card, but uh, I'm never happy about it, and I don't think the results when it is successful are fair to the game, and I don't think the results when it's unsuccessful are fair to the game. And there's one word that sums up what it is, which is swingy. It's a very swingy card. Um, when it goes off, especially if you've played it on turn two, it puts a huge amount of pressure on the board for the uh, investment that you put into it. Uh, it and it, uh, worse than that, it punishes your opponent for stumbling. And I think in limited that's uh it's pretty rough to punish someone for stumbling because it's so easy to stumble there's only so much you can do to craft a good deck there's only so much you can do to ensure that you have a two drop a three drop a four drop uh it's difficult and uh ideally you want to be playing a two drop a three drop a four drop and playing on curve and limited and, and so if that doesn't happen uh, having a card in the game that makes you really sad that it didn't happen seems unhealthy yeah the other thing that sort of follows along with that is it's another it's a card that really is very play draw dependent so it's just so much better on the play it is because your opponent has to have a two drop yeah if it's played on on the draw then your opponent can have a three drop can have another two drop if they had two two drops in their hand they have so much more control and here it just uh yeah, it exacerbates the, the the huge advantage that going first already has, and un, I don't know why it I don't know why it had to be that way. And then the other the other problem with it is that its fail state is that it does exactly nothing. It does nothing at all if if your opponent just plays a unit every turn, which has which happens. Um, so you're basically just rolling a die and and hoping and hoping that the that the card does what it's supposed to do. So it's almost impossible to synergize with unkindness on purpose. And it's in shadow, which has a lot of sacrifice effects. And a lot of times when I put unkindness in my deck, I'm thinking, you know what? If this goes off, it's going to make good fodder for Marsh Dragon. But I can't count on it at all. And <laughs> uh, and so sometimes it's good fodder for Marsh Dragon, and sometimes it's a blank card. And sometimes it wins the game by itself. Um, and and I don't think it had to be designed this way. Because it's designed in a very all-or-nothing way. And it could have been something like uh, at the end, of, at the, end of, the, of, of the cursed player's turn, if they didn't play a unit, create one Flying Raven. And then the curse stays around. And then you could put a cap on the number of, of Ravens that it can create total. Like three mm -hmm. or four and then each turn that you didn't play a unit, there would be a penalty, but it wouldn't be 3-3 three, three worth of power on turn 3 ready to attack. That's, 
seems like it would have been an easy thing to do. And they've done similar things in the past. There was that shift unit that was like an 8-8 Aegis unit uh, that could shift for two. But then every time you played a, uh, your opponent played a unit, it would increase the amount of time that it was shifted. That was fine. Because then it wasn't like, well, the turn that you don't play a unit, here comes Mr. 8-8. It didn't. <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't an all or nothing thing. Uh, I, I think it would have been much smarter to to eke out ravens rather than that rather than like just smash you in the face with them because nobody's playing unkindness in constructed. They didn't design it this way for constructed play. They designed it this way for limited play, and it's very punishing. It is a very punishing card. It's a card that I'm a little. I have mixed feelings on, even aside from the bad sort of the bad gameplay and the feel-bad moments. Because of the high variance, I I really question if it's as powerful as it looks a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Because I would... Sometimes you end up, like, with a deck where I end up, because I pick them highly, end up with a deck with, like, three unkindnesses. And then it just feels like the deck is either really awesome or does absolutely nothing. Yeah. And it's... And so it's also a card that I feel like you can't really put too many in because since the fail state's so bad, you don't really want to have three cards that do absolutely nothing um, in your deck against opponents where it does nothing. Yeah, that's how I feel about it too, yeah. So I'm never really sure where to draft them. Or do I just like draft the first one highly and then shoot it way down my pick order for the next one, even if I feel like it's going, you know, like unusually late because I just don't need that many, I don't need that many copies of it or because you don't need that many copies are you supposed to like not really take it first or second pick and just hope to get it but because it's an un- uncommon, you can't really expect to get many either. So uh-huh. it's just like, a, a it's a weird card. It and is. it's also, it's I think... I don't know. I, like, I don't know if this is like a good or bad part of the card, but it feels like a card that's hard to play correctly too. Because so often I'll have it in my hand with another two drop, and it's just like I never know what to play out first, and it's hard for me to know if it's like I'm just like not good enough to like suss out which I should do first, <laughs> or if it's just. <laughs> honestly just like a random crapshoot about which one i should it feels pretty random because on turn two you don't have enough information about the other uh, your opponent's deck to really make an educated guess i feel like about whether like it's not like based on their first color you can be like oh they probably don't have a two drop i should play my unkindness Yeah, then, only if they've shown you an Evangel at that point do you know for absolute sure whether they have a two-drop or not. Right. Yeah, no, it is a crapshoot. It it clearly is. And so I think playing the Unkindness on turn two has more to do with like how advantageous it would be to you if it went, if it went off right away or if <laughs> you're pretty much in control of the game if you don't play it. Uh, and then you can afford to play it later. And it's more likely to go off later because people do run out of units in their hand. So, um, but then sometimes the Ravens don't have any impact later in the game either because other flyers have come down and they can't attack through anything. Right. Yeah. And that's like, I guess, kind of the interesting part of it because there's, you know, you're like, oh, well, maybe I should just develop because it's likely to 
um, you know, to go off later. But at the same time, I'm always thinking like, well, also I can afford to take like an early hit and just like let, you know, I'm more, I'm more able to like accept one attack from my opponent's two drop than I am, you know, trying to play in unkindness later. So you just like play it there and just let it sit for five turns. And you're really not that you could theoretically, if your opponent doesn't have the perfect draw, you're not like that far behind by sort of skipping your turn two. So yeah, it just, there's so many factors in it and it's really, like I said, hard for me to suss out whether there's a, a sort of discernible correct answer or not to when right. and how you should play it. Yeah, it does. I think that's a big part of why it doesn't feel good because a lot of cards that uh, that feel good to play feel like they have a specific purpose, and unkindness just sort of feels like it's generally a strong card because of the times when it's good. Uh, and it doesn't really have anything to do with how you're planning to play. So it doesn't have that sense of purpose that a lot of cards do. Um, I mean, it, it does make several units, um, and Shadow does like to sacrifice units, and I do sacrifice the Ravens once they've been outclassed by another flyer. Uh, but because it can't make them consistently, it doesn't feel like it's for that either. Mm-hmm. It just sort of feels like a like a random strong uncommon, but uh, that's that's always a huge crapshoot. So I don't know. It doesn't feel like a card that was that was uh, that had enough sort of thought put into it before it was it was thrown into the game. And uh, and as I've said, I respect Direwolf's design uh, for the most part very very much. But a lot of stuff I know a lot of stuff slips through. Uh, Mm-hmm. through playtesting and and maybe someone just was like yeah it's fine <laughs> <laughs> what's your card of the week oh, yeah. <laughs> so my card of the week is metal which is yeah. the the one-time fast spell that uh gives a unit invulnerability for the turn and um this is another card that's really hard for me to evaluate because i feel like i'm a lot lower on metal than as far as I can tell, everyone else. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I, All of the other players. Well, you're probably right, because you were in the top 20. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, I never play it, and um, I, I don't exactly know, know why, because this is also, like, the card that comes to mind when I think of um, Metal is, uh, is Refresh. That was, like, um, the two-time fast spell that gave a unit plus four health permanently. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And that was used to really great effect last format, where you could just, like, you would blow out these double blocks against your Corrupted Behemoth, and it would have a permanent health buff, which was great with Twist. And I felt like I was able to use that card really effectively. And then... I don't know. I'm just like never in board states where metal feels like more than an okay one for one. And I don't know. I'm just wondering if I'm view if I'm viewing it wrong. Like it is it is it a card you kind of want one of in all of your big time decks? Uh, I think it's very deck dependent for me. I 
I'm often confused about whether I really want to have metal in, in my decks. And I think the best way to look at it is if it has a specific purpose rather than it being sort of general combat trick insurance. Um, I'm a lot more likely to play it if I have a bunch of Spike Tail Kirins, um, or if I'm playing like Big Praxis, where I know that the way I'm going to win is to try to get some champion grapplers through, mm -hmm. or if I'm playing Xenon and my my end game is is like Bane Wolf, because that's a good way to to give Bane Wolf its mastery, um, but also you can use it to win combats earlier on if you don't have a Bane Wolf yet, or if you. If, or if it looks like you're likely to win without having to get to seven power, um, so basically what I'm saying is that is that unit. If I have a lot of units with mastery, I'm a lot more likely to play metal, uh, mm -hmm. especially if I'm not in justice and I don't have those combat tricks at my disposal. Metal is kind of a good substitute for if things are already large, and uh, and metal is often going to give them that extra attack with mastery that'll make a big difference. It's especially good with Spike Tail Kieran just because it Spike Tail so often needs to get that one big slam in and then you're going to win the game because all of your units are a little bigger. Right. And uh, that obviously takes seven power all by itself, but that's not undoable if you're playing like if you've got if you've gotten at a board stall and and those those early Spike Tails have just been kind of sitting around. So yeah, uh, metal is not something that I just throw into decks because you got to have a certain number of combat tricks. It's something that I throw in because I think it's going to help in specific situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that answer a lot because I guess I hadn't been thinking of those like little sort of micro synergies between metal, metal and, um, you know, these mastery cards. And I had just mostly been thinking about it as not a great combat trick. Um, or a very, yeah, I guess, I mean, that's the thing is I don't understand. I honestly don't understand why metal never feels great for me because it's just like, it seems great to play metal on just like Grodov's favored and kill whatever they block, you know, whatever's blocking that. But for some reason, like a draw strength or a finest hour just seems like it does more, even though, uh, I don't know, I guess, the, like, <laughs> even though it's, when I think of like situations where a lot of play, like game states, you're like, oh, well, they're actually just equivalent. So I'm not sure why metal never, it doesn't feel that way in game for me. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it could be sort of a, it could be just sort of an emotional attachment thing because it does feel better to like make your your unit big enough that your opponent's numbers can't kill it, you know? Yeah. Um, and metal doesn't do that. It's sort of go. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like a tangential solution. Like, okay, let's just cancel this combat. Except my creature lives and yours die, and then now your turn. Like I didn't do anything. I just made it so that your cards don't work this turn. It's a yeah. little bit like it feels a little cheaty almost. Uh. There's a couple of things that metal does that that uh, that combat tricks can't do, like cancel out your opponent's deadly units. Like attack, <laughs> you can attack into a scorpion with it, which you can't do with draw strength, and um, you can cancel out uh, you can cancel out like damage based removal with it, which is sometimes a thing that is <laughs> nice to be able to do for one power. Draw strength also works for that, um, but the more expensive pump spells uh, 
don't. Right. And I think uh, I think it's pretty good for one power metal. Is uh, it's just that like a lot of one power cards, it doesn't. Um, it's it's not as versatile and strong as 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 other as other cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I would think of it. I, I, if you want to feel better about it, I would think of it. I would think of it as something that has uh, that has specific synergies with units in your deck, but which also is available for a variety of situations that um, that can come up, like units with killer that are trying to kill your units, or like something with deadly that's blocking some of your big things. Uh, and that's just sort of those little random things that can happen in a game where it's like, oh, metal just happens to be really good here. I put it in the deck for different reasons. I put it in for this other reason, but um, just happens to get me through this situation. And I think it's just that kind of card. Uh, it's a low, it's it's a it's a fairly low quality combat trick that's perfect for some game plans. Yeah. So do you think you put it like on average in your time decks or, you know, like 50% of your time decks will have it or do you have a uh, sense of that? It really does depend specifically on what units I have in those decks. Mm-hmm. I'm a lot more likely to put it in if I have those mastery cards. So it's not really a percentage kind of a thing. It's, right. uh, it's very much the style of deck because I will end up in, in time without hardly any mastery units sometimes because they just didn't come or yeah. it's just sort of a different style of deck, and then I don't even consider metal because it's mm-hmm. not a, a good enough combat trick if I'm if I'm not getting a mastery off with it. Okay, right. Well, and I guess that's what one of my questions is like. You know, a lot of your time decks end up with a couple Gordas favored, a couple Mandrakes or whatever, and so I don't you think have I would play it for those. I don't think I would play it for for Gordas favorites and Mandrakes. Yeah, because I think the that metal in those situations is going to be like you're attacking in with your your six five or your seven five and then your opponent blocks with another large unit and then yours lives and theirs dies and it's like great metal was kind of a removal spell but also if they had just traded that also would have been okay and so you don't really need the metal in that situation it's just a little bonus uh and it's not going to happen every game so i i wouldn't uh, i mean it's not like it's a bad play obviously your unit winning and being able to attack again the next turn is good in that situation, but I don't know if it's worth a card yeah. to make sure that happens. You're already in a good situation if you've played a Grodov's favorite and you get to attack into your opponent's army with it. So uh, I would say if you've got sort of a general deck with the general time deck with a bunch of big units at the top end, that metal's uh, and le- that that metal is cuttable in that deck most of the time because it's not going to have that huge an effect on the game. But if you have, but if your two drops are like a batch of Spike Tail Kirins, and then at the top you're playing Champion Grapplers, probably Metal's going to be worth it because those things uh, run away with the game if they get to attack freely, in mm-hmm. a way that Grodos favored and, and Mandrake don't. Right. Okay. Yeah, I I I like that. I because I think that's I feel like that's when Metal feels the worst to get blown out by is like they attack with their Grodos favored, you block with your Grodos favored, and then they meddle, and then now they have a Grodos favored, and you don't on the board, and you're like, oh, yeah. well, now I'm going to have to play, like, three more units to be able to triple block to kill their Grodos favored, that's alive. But like I said, it just never feels like that works out for <laughs> on my end, and so 
yeah, so it just has made metal really hard for me to like evaluate. Well, like I say, like the, those are the situations which are a, a fun, which are a bonus if you already have metal in your deck. Like, mm-hmm. like if you if you've already got some really good uses for metal in your deck, uh, another thing that is going to happen is that your Grodov's favorites get to attack into another Grodov's favorite, and then you've got that metal in your hand. Uh, so it's not like it's not good in that situation. It's just I wouldn't put it in just for that situation because I don't think it's going to happen often enough that you're happy to have that medal. So that's part of what that is. Is like you've mm-hmm. got that the, the the situation doesn't come up where metal is great in every game, and so it feels like a waste of a card a lot of the time. But it's not that it isn't good in those situations where you get to cast it. It's just that the I don't think it happens often enough that it makes metal feel good if you don't have a specific reason for it. So on that note, we'll move on to our seven-win run breakdown. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we collect seven-win deck lists from our listeners, which you can send in to farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them on our seven-win channel in the Farming Eternal Discord in either an exported deck list or any any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And so uh, one of the things we've always done as this podcast is we've accepted sort of listener deck lists. We compile them into a spreadsheet, which kind of tells us how different cards are doing and how different factions are doing. And then we talk about it on the show and we read out your name. So first off, thanks as always to John Holio for entering all these lists and doing most of the grunt work. And yeah, so let's begin. So our new contributors, we have a bunch of new contributors and a couple big names this week. Uh, Ant-Man Rising, who uh, got second in the expedition um, ECQ a couple months ago, um, sent in a deck list. Uh, Iris M., Quickie Mart, Loco Pojo to add a little spice to our to our lists that we receive. Uh, Reprieve two one one two and Sleffer thirteen. And then our veteran contributors are Abednego, Agent Dynamo, Beard Broken, Ben Gracer, Charmish, Collector, Damian R, Darth Herman two, Dubes, E Moneybags, Hats on Lamps, Jacob P, Jedi E J, Joey Andy Juve, Jose Carlos twenty one twenty one. Cassandrath, Mattioker, Mercurio Blue, Niles H, Nothership, Parmalee, Patomaro, Raven Dragon, Rofer, Spiffy Man, Tempest Dragon King, Twin Hex, and Zuby. So thank you again for taking the time to send in those lists. We really appreciate it. Cambrai has been uh, overtaken as the uh, most popular sort of color faction or color pair in this sort of 7.1 or 7.5 set that we're currently in. I don't know how many, it's hard to call it 7.5 when I don't know how many times they're going to change it before the next set releases. But, uh, so, but yeah, so actually Xenon. Yeah, what? I would say I was going to guess. Uh, I was going to guess Xenon. Yeah, yeah, 25% of our decks have uh, Xenon in it. And uh, that's made sense to me um, because it feels like I always end up in, I've, I've ended up in Xenon a lot. And actually, and one of the reasons I think this has happened is you know we had said time and justice were kind of were in the lead that first week right after the patch hit and then time justice shadow kind of were all tied last week and then this week actually uh, shadows jumped ahead so we continue to get more shadowless than anyone else so right now shadow actually is our number one um, color that we're receiving decks in which is a little surprising to me I mean, it makes sense, I think, when you think about the draft packs and how Shadow has a lot of strong cards. And I think the fact that it has uh, 
Eviscerate and Alley Guide, I think, is leading people to draft more Shadow Jacks. Yeah, because you're seeing those early and sort of locking in your colors, the shadow color earlier. Yeah, and another part of it, those two cards for sure, and another part of it is how, uh, you know, when we did the set breakdown, the boosted cards for Shadow, um, as far as the units, uh, there's just more playables. Uh, <laughs> it's not it's not so concentrated in, in fringe playable one and two drops. It's, it's, it's spread out in a much healthier way, and... I think that's it's difficult to get away from like it's very difficult to get through that first pack without like seeing a few playable shadow cards whereas it's very easy to get through the first pack without seeing any playable fire cards for example right. um, it's it, so it shadows always sort of like an option because you've got a couple of playables in it after the first pack and then and and then there's still good shadow cards in uh the flames of zolta pack too so it's pretty easy to end up there i've ended up in xenon a lot and then probably the strongest deck that i've drafted in this format was an Argentport deck and that was nearly mono shadow like i got some good shadow cards at the beginning i got a uh uh the three two that can draw cards uh at the cost of three life fenris nightshade and then i got the life speaker for my second pick and i was like those are two very good cards and they work well together because when <laughs> Nightshade has lifesteal, there's no penalty for drawing cards. <laughs> yeah, it's <that's>... great. <laughs> uh, but um, but then the shadow continued to be good for that. And then because I cut shadow so well, the mysterious algorithm that chooses pack two and three gave me more shadow, <laughs> and I barely had to pick a, a second faction. And uh, it was a ridiculously strong deck. Uh, I I was my opponents were unable to do anything and i don't think but i didn't have like a lot other than the fenris nightshade and like rares in it particularly you mm -hmm. know and uh i think i i mean i picked up a whatever that removal spell is the decimate removal spell the rare that uh that can kill two things possibly um and that's an argent port spell so that was lucky for sure uh but other than that it was just just a bunch of shadow cards you know and then a couple of like justice cards. It was just the regular shadow cards, and it was unstoppable. So I yeah. think if you don't get the perfect shadow deck, you've already got a pretty good shadow deck just from the all of the packs put together. And then of course time has those busted Grodov's favorites and other cards in Flames of Zolta. So yeah, you end up in Zenon a lot. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess it makes sense how just like tweaking. The draft packs a little bit because it's not like it was like a huge overhaul of the draft packs really just like boosted shadows and switching the order i think switching the order helped a lot but yeah. uh boosted shadow so much and like fire has really taken a hit and uh primals continues to be horrible um at least in, in the amount of uh deck lists we receive though i will say i have drafted it feels like i'm personally drafted ending up in primal decks a fair bit and uh i'm not necessarily doing great with them but it is happening and uh we have been getting more like uh felm decks so primal shadow so i think shadow is helping boost up that color combination a bit and then like you mentioned you had a great Argentport deck um Argentport is Argentport and cambrai are are are, are 
both tied for our second most popular color yeah. combination. So yeah, both that of makes, those sense. makes sense too. And just in terms of which decks I draft that feel uh, that feel good that feel powerful, um, yeah, that it, it it does seem like it does seem like Shadow is, is a pretty safe bet. I've yeah. had a couple of mill decks in this in this format, and I didn't really have mill decks in the last format, but I I, I had some really good ones this time. I had a, I think it was a seven zero mill deck, maybe a seven one, that uh, that and you know you can't know for sure that you're going to be in mill in, after the first pack because there just aren't enough cards that support it. But um, I had some good shadow cards, and then all of those wretched ravens kept coming, and so I just made a mill deck out of them, and it was great. Yeah. Um. So I'm more likely to, in a way, to. I think it, yeah, I think it strengthens anything that has shadow in it. Now you end up with, um, um, you just sort of if if you're if you're mainly shadow after the first pack, then you can kind of go any direction with it because those basic shadow cards are are pretty are pretty good across the board, no matter what how they're paired. Though I will say, and I will talk a little bit more about this when we reviewed the draft. My my decks look ridiculous after pack one. It's oh, just sure. like so, so many drafts. I just have like two or three of every single color, and more or less <laughs> none of the colors are really like drawing me, like really pulling me towards one of them. And uh, and yeah. I've been kind of purposely doing that, where I've really been trying to like just stay open and just like pick the most powerful card almost straight through like pick one through 12. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just because it just feels like none of them are so powerful that pack two won't lead me in a different direction. And so I feel like I just would rather end pack one with a solid base of pretty good options in every color instead of having medio very mediocre options of all just one color that I might not end up being because uh, pack two and three are pulling me in a different direction. Yeah, that happens to me too, and I think that's more or less what we said in the set break in the in the set breakdown before mm-hmm. we all were really playing it too. Was that uh, it was that staying open in the first pack was going to be was going to be probably the uh, a good strategy, and I think it usually is. There's definitely times where I where I get a lot of good cards in one faction in the first pack, mm-hmm. but. Uh, usually I think it's healthier for me to just be prepared for that not to happen and just to have some good cards. Yeah. Because um, I, I think my saddest drafts in this format are the ones where I, where I choose factions a little bit too early and I have to watch an entire faction's worth of powerful cards go by in pack two and three. Uh, that shouldn't ever happen. I should always be uh, open to, to going into a strong faction if I'm getting signals. But, you know, I'm human and sometimes I make mistakes. <laughs> so sometimes I just watch like an entire high quality mustard deck go by. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, guess I should have been in primal. <laughs> yeah. So that is so hard to know. It's like, because I'm still happy. This, it happened in this draft that we're going to review. There's like an eighth pick green stretch empath or something. And you're like, well, do I jump ship now? Because primal's definitely open. But it's like, I don't know, just. The primal cards still don't excite me enough mm-hmm. to like make me want to jump ship anymore. Especially now, you know, like in set seven, I probably would have jumped ship because it. But that's because it would have actually been my seventh or eighth pick. But like now, when you see a seventh or eighth pick green stretch empath, you know, it's really your like 
19th or 20th pick, which is a lot harder to salvage, you know. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. To get enough playables. So it's kind of like a weird, there's like a lot of interesting, weird dynamics happening. Yeah, I mean, there's always a trade-off between how powerful the cards are you're seeing that aren't in your factions and the and 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 how powerful the ones are like you're always going to see cards outside of your factions that are more powerful than the cards in your factions that you're picking because yeah. that's how draft works and uh i think that's probably the one of the most difficult skills in drafting eternal is knowing when to switch i think yeah. that's the hardest one uh, it's one of the things that turned me off of drafting eternal when i first started getting into the game because it felt so difficult to know how to read signals compared to what I was used to with magic. And um, and I still haven't gotten it right, but I tell you, a lot of my strongest drafts have been the ones where I switch late because the, the, the signals are just too strong to ignore. And 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 like switching at the right time or the is is what makes the difference. So mm-hmm. I don't know. All right. Shall we move on to our main topic? Yes, please. Okay. So uh this is uh, our main topic is conceding too early. So you had a few thoughts about cards that make people concede and how you feel like a lot of people are conceding too early. So we kind of just wanted to go through, just talk about conceding, conceding too early and about some of these stronger cards that maybe there's more play to than people give credit. I was, I was specifically inspired by a game that you just happened to watch of mine. I, I was playing, uh, I don't remember exactly what my deck was. Uh, I know it had Shadow in it because I had a, a 6-4 Legendary in that deck. Uh, it was a 6-4 Flying Legendary. You sacrifice a unit when it comes into play, and then you pay some sort of uh, power for its ultimate, and you take control of a unit that has less toughness than mm-hmm. it does. I don't know the name of that card because I've only seen it once. <laughs> it seemed pretty good, so I first picked it. Uh uh, so it was that I had some flyers. Um, I had gotten my opponent down to ten life, and I had lethal in the air. But the problem was that my opponent had played a Kodosh sees all, and then on the next turn another Kodosh sees all. And a lot of times when someone has played two Kodosh sees all on you, and you have no attachment and remove uh, attachment removal in your deck, that's when you give up. But I didn't. I just kind of kept playing, and uh, I remember I remember messaging you in game. Uh, hey, I don't know if there's anything in my deck that can make me win this game, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep going here. Uh, and uh, my opponent had gotten to the point where there were enough two two Griffins on his board that he would attack several of them into my units enough to do with me a little bit of damage, but also enough leave back enough to protect him from from the crackback. And then a few turns later, I drew Warlock's Brew, which I had forgotten was in my deck. <laughs> and Warlock's Brew is a uh, is a spell that gives minus two minus two to a unit and every other unit with the same name. And Kodosh sees all makes units with the same name. So I made sure that my opponent didn't have any other flying units uh, in the way, which took a few more turns of casting removal and and just sort of playing. And then I wiped his entire board of Griffins and attacked for lethal. So I won that game against two Kodosh sees all. Yeah. Uh, I don't think my opponent was expecting that to happen. I'll bet when they cast the second Kodosh Sees All, they were like, I win this one. <laughs> I'm going to win this game. <laughs> but they were wrong. And Warlock's Brew is like a specifically good way to to deal with Kodosh Sees All, but only if you have lethal on board, because then the problem comes back. 
But uh, yeah, it just sort of made me think, you know, there's times when you don't need to concede in a hopeless situation because the cards in your deck do a lot of things (laughs) and maybe one of them is win you the game. Uh, So it made me think about some of the other cards in this format that I've seen people just outright concede to the instant they hit the board and whether they need to be doing that. Um, it's also why I chose Unkindness as the as the card of the week this time, because that's one of those cards. When an Unkindness goes off on turn three, I've had people concede right then and there. They're just like, nope, don't want to deal with it. Next yeah. game, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never done that, because I feel like, well, there's three power on board in the air, and that's bad for me. But also, that's like a... Um, that's like a, 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 a nine-turn clock, so maybe I'll draw something to deal with it. Yeah, so do we want to review some of these cards? I want to talk about why certain cards generate that kind of hopelessness and others don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to talk about uh, whether people are justified in conceding so soon or if it's, uh, if it's one of those cases where, where people think to themselves, well, look, my opponent just got lucky with his picks and he got lucky uh, with his draw, so I might as well just give up and go on to the next game where I might be lucky. Whether that's happening... Uh, and whether it's worth running specific cards in your deck that deal with the kind of cards that you hate losing to uh, if it weakens your your deck overall. So I guess the easiest way to do that is to talk about specific examples of those kind of cards. Right. Um, I think the first one that comes that, that I thought of when I was when I was thinking about doing this topic was uh, teething whelp. And teething whelp is a is the most one of the most snowbally cards in the format. It costs two fire. Um, it is a 2-2 dragon with Mastery 2 that gives it flying. So it needs to attack once, and then it gets flying. And once it reaches Mastery 6, it gains plus 3, plus 3. So now it's a 5-5 dragon. And that means uh, it's very hard to block if it gets one clean hit in. And then it's very hard to deal with it all once it becomes the 5-5. And I've seen people concede to that thing after it gets that first hit in a few times. Yeah. Yeah, I that's I will not when I might concede when it gets that mastery six trigger. Sure, because because that is tough to beat. Teething whelp is almost I feel like worse than unkindness in just how punishing it is if played on turn two. Yeah, oddly enough, unkindness has like a higher floor because late game you're still getting you know you're getting flyers as compared to Teething Whelp Blake game, is probably not doing that much. Yeah, as a top deck, Teething Whelp is, is not great. Uh, but on turn two, it is just such a punishing card. And I, I think one of the worst parts about Teething Whelp is that it plays so well with combat tricks. Yes. Because you're getting extra value. You know, it's, so it's worth playing like a Finest Hour on it early, um, because you kill a unit and it now has flying, so it's it becomes evade. You know, it's like your finest hour, your desperate gambit also gave the unit permanent flying, which is like a pretty good combat trick. Yeah, sure is. Yeah, that's exactly why I hate it. Yeah, if somebody play, and also uh, it really plays into whoever goes first too, because teething mm-hmm. whelp is so much stronger on the play than on the than on the draw. But yeah, when you when somebody plays a teething whelp and then you play your 2-2 two, two, to counter it. And then on the next turn, that Teething Well comes in. It's like, great. <laughs> what, am I, what do I do now? <laughs> like, I have to block. I have to block. 
Yes. Otherwise, it's flying and I can't block it. So, so whatever combat trick you've got, it gets to eat me alive because I have no choice here. And any right. card that takes away meaningful choices from limited play is probably not good for the format. I think it was first revealed. It was like, wow, this is such a powerful card and a card that's fun to play. But I think this is probably one of the most frustrating worst for the format cards in the format. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and I don't know, like, I mean, it's fun to have powerful uncommon cards. It's just that the initial investment for this one is so small. Mm-hmm. Like, unlike something like, uh, I mean, there's plenty of like 4-4 flyers and stuff in the uncommon slot. Or, uh, I mean, sometimes there are. And then uh, there's plenty of, of powerful uncommons in general. And, uh, and most of them are are expensive. And that's part of what makes them fun is they're not they're not dominating the game early. They're the game they're the cards that you play up to. Uh, mm-hmm. and then you have to fill in the rest of your like your early curve with with uh, with commons usually. And then you get to play your four four flyer with endurance or whatever happens to be the dominant uncommon in that format. Uh, but but uh, but teething whelp is is your two is your two drop and you don't need to do much to make it uh, an unstoppable force because uh, you're already probably going to be playing combat tricks and removal in your fire deck. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's I don't know I don't know how I would fix that one if I were uh, if I were designing it doesn't feel like a healthy card for the format but I'm not sure. Uh, any like if you nerfed it at all it wouldn't really be the same card uh you could give it like mastery three for the flying which would make it at least a little awkward but that's still it would still be a card that instantly wins the game if you put hoof slash on it so i don't know yeah i think uh you know the only thing i could think of is giving it like a second fire influence you know make it double fire so it's just that much less likely to come out on turn two right um yeah just make just 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 uh require a little bit more investment on it um and so i guess uh uh, there's not a lot of answers for the five five in this format certainly not very many that cost two well it's one of the reasons why bring down is so good in this format is that there are some really good flyers and uh, some really serious problem cards that you can take care of with Bring Down, including like uh, uh, the the two one flyer with Exalted Cavalry mm-hmm. and uh, Longtail Cavalry, and uh, like I've seen people let a Teething Whelp through so they can bring down it, you know, right? Um, and that that would be great, except that Bring Down is a is a two faction card <laughs> and it's only playable in a small percentage of decks. So it's not like it's a great universal answer for those kind of problems. It, uh, it's it's a great card if you happen to be playing um, Primal Justice. Uh, and it's like it's one of the only efficient things that you can do to a teething well. Uh, the other one, I guess, would be Inflict Conscience. And Inflict Conscience is fine. It keeps the it keeps the full grown teething well from attacking you to death, but it's still a five five flyer that gets to block and trade with practically anything else in the game. 
Yeah. So it's not a, a terrific answer to it. It's more like I would rather not lose to that card immediately. Uh, and then it's still a huge problem. It's, uh, so there's not, yeah, other than like uncommons like permafrost, it's not, there's no efficient way to deal with it. So, um, yeah. So part of the reason it feels so unfair is the efficiency of how it, of how it dominates the game. Uh, unlike most of the cards on this list that I made, uh, it just, <laughs> and like unkindness, it, it warps the game around itself, um, right. for a very little investment. Like the five five is probably going to kill you, but I think give it a couple of turns. Uh, usually, I usually give it a couple of turns. I'm like, I might draw something. There's things in my deck that can deal with it um, if my opponent doesn't play anything else for a few turns, and then yeah. uh, usually they do, and the concession is is not, is is fine. The one reason you might not need to concede with this card is once it's a five five, it's going to kill you so quickly anyway. You're not really saving that much time. Yeah, let it happen. Let the whelp eat. Yeah, <laughs> let it. Let it have its fun. <laughs> let it let it put you in its teeth and worry you back and forth like a puppy. Next card is Kodash Sees All, and we talked about this a little bit, but Kodash Sees All is a seven-power cursed relic that makes a griffin every turn uh, the with power and toughness uh, equal to the number of curses you have on your opponent. And it's a really good finisher in this format if you because it continues to make units for free every turn, but you still get to play cards and continue to advance your game plan if the Griffins by themselves aren't enough to win. Um, this one I feel differently about. I do, I, but I've seen people, I, I've seen people concede immediately when they see a Kodash sees all. It happens. Yeah. Um, and it's justified because it's very hard to fight against. But if you're yeah. ahead on board and somebody plays a Kodash sees all on you, Often you can fight it by simply continuing to attack and the griffins are forced to block. And so it essentially creates a free chump blocker every turn. And that's not always enough to win the game. But if you're already behind and someone plays a Kodash Seizal, you're probably done. Yeah, you are probably done. I think Kodash Seizal is interesting in this because, I mean, kind of not that your opponent misplayed in the game that you talked about. But I, I just feel like because Kodash sees all is such a slow win condition, it gives your opponent a lot of opportunity to misplay. Especially if you have no flyers, you're just going to lose. But like, you know, I feel like in, in games that I've been in and games that I've watched, you know, when your opponent has a Kodash sees all and you have one or two big flyers, it's really challenging to know how many griffins you commit to attacking and like and what you're supposed to do with all of these griffins these infinite griffins that you're making and i found that leads to a lot of opportunities where your opponent with the kodash sees all might overcommit and then because you've sort of had them stalled out with your flyers you got to play like a a bounce spell and a silence and all of a sudden they don't have any blockers in the air because they, you know, they had only held back two griffins to block your flyers and you get to attack in for lethal and stuff like that. Yeah, it's easy to slip up. Um, it's easy to feel overconfident once you've got uh, Kodash sees all down on the table, too. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I, it also is a seven power card. And so I don't think it ever feels entirely unfair that it ends the game the way it does. 
but it attack it also attacks you from a different avenue than other seven power cards. Like if uh, I-, I don't think anyone feels like um, Sky Horror Sky Draconis is an unfair card or a card that they'll instantly concede to if they see it. You know, right. it's a seven power card that's very powerful, but it doesn't. It, it's not. It, it doesn't end your. It doesn't end all hope because <laughs> you might be able to kill it. Uh, it takes a couple of attacks for it to get the permafrost down. It's not the end of the world if it gets a permafrost down. It's still just a large flyer that your opponent had to spend a lot of power to put on the table. Um, but with Kodosh Seize All, it is, for one thing, you can't kill it directly unless you have dedicated attachment removal. And uh, and for another thing, it never stops. It never stops generating value. And uh, it's it feels like an inevitability um, that I don't think any other card in the format can produce. Like mm-hmm. it's definitely going to eventually win the game. Um, so there's counterplay to it for sure, because all it does is make a tiny unit each turn, um, unless it's a deck uh, devoted to curses somehow. Uh, by the way, on, uh, so, uh, against a a deck that seems to have a lot of curses and is putting inflict consciences on my units. Sometimes when they reach six power, I will just attack with my inflict conscience <laughs> units to prevent them from getting giant griffins because it feels so inevitable that they've got a Kodash Seize All in their deck, and usually that's that's fine. <laughs> usually that that is that is almost always borne out with the Kodash Seize All on the next turn. It's interesting. That may be just like my weird psychic abilities that I get from playing too much of the game, but um, it has happened. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't think Kodash Sees All is unhealthy for the format. I think it's fine to have really powerful cards at that cost, and it's an uncommon, so it's not going to show up constantly. It does raise the question whether it's a good idea to run attachment removal just in case you run into it. And uh, I, I, I would probably say no. I would run attachment removal because there's so many good attachments besides in this format, and maybe you get to tag a Kodash Sees All um, if your opponent happens to have one. And if it seems like the sort of deck that wants to play Kodash Seize All, because I, I, like any deck can, with justice in it, can throw a Kodash Seize All as its top end in, and it's fine. But there's certain decks where you just can tell that that's what they're trying to do, because they're <laughs> playing more curses than they, they, they should be. Uh, then, yeah, keep the attachment removal in your hand if you happen to have any. But I think because of the way the format is with all of those exalted units and things like Unkindness, uh, it's justifiable to play attachment dedicated attachment removal anyway but you should never overload on it because of course some people don't run attachments and then you're sad you're sad yeah. with your attachment removal yeah this was actually a really big discussion in the main discord the other day we were discussing sort of um whether disjunction is a card that's ever worth putting in your deck or not oh and, yeah i'm pretty pro disjunction honestly yeah and i am too and it was and it felt like I was probably the most pro-disjunction of the people that were talking. And the people that seemed to be like, oh, well, sometimes you can play disjunction, really valued the getting back one of your own attachments. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I view disjunction as a way to kill an enemy attachment. And then sometimes it has the bonus of getting back one of your own attachments. And it felt like a lot of people were talking about it as a way to get back one of your own attach- attachments that sometimes had, like, incidental bonus of killing an enemy attachment. 
It was really interesting because it felt like our in-game experience and our view of the card were were very different. Um, but yeah, I think Disjunction is a, a, a pretty good card and worth running in a lot of decks. And there's just like, and there's just a lot of incidental synergy. You know, like the one that I like to talk about is just like how it's another card that can potentially trigger muster with just a single card because you can bring back an attachment and then yeah. play that attachment uh, triggering muster you know it's fast speed so you can you know kill enemy attachments sort of as a combat trick so it does I had a, a situation today where I had a disjunction in my deck and I was playing against an opponent who had something in their hand I could tell that they had a combat trick because of the pause um, and I had uh, I had earlier used uh, the Staff of Slowness, I think it's called. It gives plus one, plus one endurance, and and uh, cast slow on my opponent's hand. Mm-hmm. And I had it on one of my units, and I had a disjunction in my hand. Uh, and so it, it, I, I, I suicided the unit with the Staff of Slowness into one of into my opponent's board. It wasn't big enough to take something out, so that I could disjunction, cast the the staff of slowness on my opponent's hand just to see what the trick was, so it didn't wreck me. Yeah. <laughs> I did win that game, so it was like this is great. I'm glad I had this disjunction, even though my opponent never used an attachment, <laughs> right. because it really saved my bacon here. It gave me all of this versatility. Yeah, yeah. So I do think people undervalue disjunction because it's just I think in it's typical that sort of effect is usually just considered so bad and limited people just dismiss it but it has i think a surprising amount of play yeah i agree uh, i mean you know you can't hide uh, like if you don't have any attachments in your deck to bring back then its usefulness is definitely going to be very limited because you have it depends on your opponent playing something worth destroying right. um, but it's pretty common to have something that's worth bringing back Say your yeah. unkindness that went off on turn three. <laughs> you can bring it back and play it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a thing that can happen uh, if you're a very cruel person. Yeah. Um, an unkind person, as it were. Next. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you have a few rares you want to talk about? I do. Uh, they come up often enough because I think they're boosted or... Wait, uh, no, Elan Mizo is in uh, Flames of Zolta. Anyway, the next one is Elan Mizo. Yeah, none uh, of these are boosted. But, no, none of these but, are boosted. They do they, seem like... The, these three do seem like they come up very often. I see them often enough that they might as well be. Because uh, people t- see them and then they take them and then they play them. Uh, Elan Mizo is the 6-6 six, six with Endurance for 5. It, uh, it needs 2 Time Influence and 2 Primal Influence. Uh, and it has a mastery of 12 where it makes a copy of itself. Uh, and that copy, of course, can go on to make a copy of itself if it manages to get mastery 12. This is another card that I see opponents conceding to immediately, pretty often. And I, I think it has a bit of that inevitability, like, uh, you know, if it does achieve its mastery, it's like, well, this is just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. But I have never seen it achieve its mastery. <laughs> Uh, the people concede long before it actually does it. <laughs> uh, they're they're done as soon as they see a five power six six with endurance with upside uh, come out. They're done. They're like, well, the, the winds were against me today. Sometimes it does feel hopeless. Like I've lost to a couple 
Ila Mizos that had a predatory instinct cast on them. And yeah, that's rough. That feels... <laughs> you're getting really close to hopeless. <laughs> yeah, because if In it clones itself, then it's still got killer, and then, yeah. And yeah. then that and then that one that's got killer is already halfway to making another clone. So yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's pr- it's pretty rough. It's a rough card. Uh it does at least require a pretty serious devotion to being in Elysian. Um because it's tough to come up with two time and two primal unless you're in those factions. Uh however, it's such a powerful card that I'll splash for it if I can. Yeah. But I, I do think that this is one of those cards where it is such a powerful card, but it's definitely worth making them have it because it's not a win-on-the-spot card. You know, no. like, if you if I mean, obviously it feels bad to triple block it and kill it, but, you know, that's better than losing the game. It's and, definitely worth doing, yeah. And that will kill it, you know what I mean? Um, you know, and, and if you kill it, it's nothing more than a big dumb guy you know it's just a slightly bigger um longhorn at that point so yeah pretty much yeah and i've definitely seen people concede when they're capable of gang blocking it and killing it uh, I, and i guess they assume well there's going to be more after that but yeah or maybe there's you know, not <laughs> maybe that was my the last good card in my hand i don't know yeah make your opponent have the metal you know what i mean yeah um, yeah, so this next one is probably uh, another sort of bane to a lot of people. I would say this is the one where I see concessions to it the quickest out of anything. Uh, where I see concessions where I don't believe that my opponent had no answer in their hand. Where they just are like, no, I hate, I hate life now. I'm done with this game entirely. Uh, and that's Sodi's Spellshaper. Uh, Sodi Spell Shaper is a is is costs two time primal. Um, it is a plus one plus one weapon. When you hit your opponent with it, you draw a card, and it has a uh, two cost spellcraft uh, that casts Equivocate, and Equivocate returns a unit to your opponent's hand uh, and replaces it with a unit of the same cost. It's a powerful card for sure. Uh, I think there's a lot of talk in Constructed about how they should nerf the stupid thing because it's so dominant in Expedition. It's very good. And it's one of the few cards that I will splash for no matter what because it's so powerful and limited that it feels entirely unfair. However, it is just a plus one plus one weapon once it's done its dirty work, you know? Equivocate isn't the backbreaking thing in Limited that it is in Constructed, because you'll probably get a replacement at roughly the same power level um, yeah. as the creature that was hit. And, uh, and drawing a card is powerful as well. Uh, however, you're still just a creature with a plus one, plus one on it. <laughs> and that can be killed, it can be blocked. Sometimes you can win games when you're down a couple of cards and your opponent has drawn a couple of cards. You don't concede after an eager offering goes off, um, even though that also draws two cards. And there's a lot of cards that draw two cards. And Spell Shaper is no doubt, no doubt, very, very powerful. But I see people concede so quickly to it that I'm sure they're not evaluating how powerful it actually is. Like, sometimes you just take the hit and you're like, my opponent drew a card, they got rid of my creature. All of that has happened. 
uh now i keep playing the game it's fine <laughs> maybe i'm maybe i'm three or four cards down now but maybe my opponent will flood and maybe i can come back into this game it's it's possible it's often possible because uh, like if i have to put my Sodi spell shaper on a 2-2 and now it's a 3-3 that draws a card when it makes contact with my opponent's face that's good but uh it's not the most dominating position i've ever been in in limited it's right it, you can contest it no you, you definitely contest it and like you said that equivocated you know you had a little bit of tempo loss but your unit is on average going to be the same size <laughs> Or about as good as the unit that got equivocated, mm-hmm. um, because and it's there's a just as good of a chance that it's better because you can draw from the uncommon, you know, and uh, the the uncommon uh, rare and legendary pool, which your yeah. common probably is not. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to me the reaction to it is of course not everyone immediately concedes to it but a surprising number of people in my experience do mm-hmm. um and i think it's and it's one of the it's one of the cards that made me think the most about how there's an emotional reason for conceding early to some of these cards rather than a like a, a strictly gameplay analytical reason you know because there's always some way in your deck of dealing with the fact that there's something across the board with a weapon on it uh, it's a small weapon. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> uh, it's not like teething well for the thing. It's going to be a five five, and you have to have very specific answers to deal with it at all. It's just a creature with a plus one plus one weapon on it, and I think it just I, I spell, Sodi Spell Shaper just feels unfair when it comes out in a way that very few cards can match because it's so cheap, and then it got rid of one of your units off of the board, and then it drew a card, and then it's just like that's. It's just so much to emotionally cope with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, how are I... you going to get back into this game? Well, you play a couple of creatures and then block the, you know, and then block. That's how you do it. Yeah, I hadn't really considered it in those terms because I guess I would have pinned it on, on what we've talked about with smugglers before, but just constructed bias where it's so strong and constructed, people sort of just you know, they bring that feeling over. and But in Constructed, you know, the unit they're playing their Sodi Spell Shaper on, probably a pretty good unit. And then the unit that they equivocated of yours was probably a good unit, and you probably got a much worse unit back. Plus, tempo, I think, is so much more important in Constructed. But people, you know, know how bad that feels in Constructed, and then so when it's played upon them, in limited, they feel like it must be just as powerful or have just as sort of a game-winning effect when it's just everything's at a lower power level. So while it's still good, it's not backbreaking necessarily. Yeah, I think you're right. And so it also feels like, hey, this card that's that's borderline too powerful in constructed is being played on me in limited with my limited cards. Uh, that's not fair. Next yeah. game, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it too, for sure. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and again, it's a super powerful card. It's not yeah. like like if I see it, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the thing. Uh, if I can at all put together the the influence requirements to play it, I, it's just fascinating to me how backbreaking it seems to be to just even play the thing on the board. 
So I don't feel the same way about this next card, uh, which I think is probably the hardest card to deal with in all of this format. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I think it would get my nomination for the card when I see my opponent play it, where I think, huh, I guess I don't get to win this one. (laughs) And this is Marizo. Um, Marizo is a seven power, uh, two time influence, uh, seven, seven unit. It has Exalted. It has a Mastery of 10, where you play three units from the top 10 cards of your deck and then discard the rest of those cards. So you look at the top 10 cards of your deck, pick three units, discard the rest, and immediately put them into play. Um, Marizo is borderline impossible to deal with. <laughs> it, is, it is nuts. Uh, it it costs seven power, so it doesn't feel entirely unfair. But it is so difficult to cope once that thing is gets an attack phase, because um, you if you chump block it, it gets one turn closer to playing three units for free. <laughs> if you trade with it somehow, because you have something that's also got seven attack power, which you probably don't then a 7-7 seven, seven weapon goes on something else, and you have to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it is. It's This is kind of, uh, not to throw Jed the Homerid under the bus, but in Discord, <laughs> he posted this ridiculous deck list. It was just, had so many good cards, and it had two Marizos in it. And he's like, I need nine cuts from this deck, I've never played with Marizo, so I was thinking of taking both Marizos out and moving in this other direction. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jed, like Marizo's one of the best cards <laughs> in limited. Why would you take two Marizos out of your deck? I was like, take out I was like, take out all of your derpy flyers, which are great cards, but don't keep you alive to get to your Marizos, because once you play your Marizos, you're gonna win the game. Do everything yeah. you can to stay alive. Yeah. That's your whole game plan. Yeah. And then play that's, two Marizos and win. That's very much the effect that they have. Yeah. <laughs> your main game plan, if you have Marizo in your deck, is play Marizo. Because even the best answer to Marizo, which is silencing him, is not that great because he's still a 7 7. <laughs> I know. It's not because you play your Grodos Favored, which you're like, oh, Grodos Favored, best card in my deck. You know, yeah. you silence their 7-7, seven, seven, and then you're like, oh, wait, they're just going to kill my Grodov's Favorite with this card. Yeah, you know, yeah. So you I'm going to need Grodov's Favorite and something else to deal with it. <laughs> and it's going to kill both of them. So uh, so after each one of these uh, these cards that we've discussed, in general, I like to say, hey, don't necessarily concede early to them. Yeah. Uh, Marizo is the exception. I think if you... I think... Uh, Certainly don't concede if there's a chance that you can still win. But I don't think I've ever seen a game where Marizo came down and then the player that played him lost. Unlike all of the other cards on this list. <laughs> yeah. Once Marizo's down, uh, it's, it's, it, you're done. Like, if the mastery goes off, you're done. Um, and also, the fact that they have a 7-7 Exalted uh, means you're probably done, even if the mastery never goes off. Uh it's a real good card. I mean, you can answer it with permafrost, but you don't have a permafrost in your deck, statistically speaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, also, Inflict Conscience doesn't deal with it at all. Because <laughs> yeah. it's got Exalted. 
Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I think is back to like disjunction, you know, disjunction at least. It does get it gets rid of the weapon once you've committed a bunch of resources to getting Marizo off the table himself. You can get rid of the weapon with a disjunction for sure, or yeah. you can get rid of the the next unit with an eviscerate. But you've used three cards to deal with their one basically at that point. Yeah, uh, no, I you've agree. Had to it's block not, it's not with great. These two but things. I mean, the point is there are there's still play to it, and there's still ways to. Yeah. I think if you think about, you know, to mitigate it, because, you know, like the nice thing about, like, say, weapon removal, not that we're, I'm not trying to claim weapon removal is like the greatest thing ever, but like, you know, the one advantage of that is you're probably going to kill their unit because they're just going to assume whatever unit they put a 7-7 weapon on is going to be able to be able to attack in. And so you can get the and I use this term loosely, the blowout by <laughs> destroying their weapon at fast speed and then killing their unit. And so they still got a lot of value. They still, you know, you know, it still took a lot of your cards to deal with this Marizo and this other unit, but it's not, ho it's not a hopeless situation. And I think that's just the main point that I think we want to get across, that there are very few cards in the game that are just totally hopeless. And I think... And instead of just conceding early in a lot of these situations, one thing is think about ways you could change your deck to just make them more resilient to different threats. I think a helpful question to ask yourself when you're looking at that final round of cuts is uh, to look at your game, at your uh, main game plan, and and think about the ways, like some of the main ways that you might lose a game, like to a, like a Voltron up, like. Thing with an exalted weapon or flyers or whatever it is and and then look at the answers that you have which are probably those weird little spells and attachments and and you're not sure which ones to include and and put in the ones that will deal with whatever situation you're otherwise weak to it seems like uh obvious advice but i i forget to do it sometimes like i'm just like oh i should just put in the strongest cards but sometimes it's very much worth putting in cards that will deal with situations that your your deck otherwise can't. And the last thing I, I'd like to say, um, you know, is there's always a chance your opponent's going to misplay. I was watching um, uh, eMoneyBag stream the other day, and I forget the exact situation, but his op opponent, I think, played... I don't know if it was like a permafrost or something on one of his units. And then... He played a Ruination Sledge on one of his units and then was scrolling over to click Skip because whatever, it might not have been a Permafrost, but whatever his opponent had played, I think he just assumed that his Ruination Sledge couldn't hit. He was just like convinced that Ruination Sledge could like only kill like Relics and um and, and like weapons yeah. and weapons or something and so he was just he's about to click skip and then his opponent conceded uh, and it was just like <laughs> it's like oh my permafrost is gonna go away yeah. yeah yeah and it's just like there was i mean eric was still in like a fairly dominant situation but like you just never know there's always a chance that think that something like that would happen and the, his opponent would have been in a much better situation when Eric didn't destroy the permafrost and give himself another attacker. 
So yeah, so we're going to start our draft here. This is a draft that I did earlier today, and this was kind of a one of those examples of, I think I navigated it correctly, but it never felt good. And so I'd really like to just hear uh, your opinion on some of these picks. Sure. So pack one, pick one, uh, cards in contention. I think this is a pretty weak pack. Uh, the commons, maybe the only good commons. There's a Cobalt Coin, a Yeti Snow Slinger, Sinister Opportunist, Journey Guide. Uh, none of those are very good commons, I don't think. Just to give you a level of what we're dealing with here. Uh, the uncommons, there's a Sadistic Glee, which is the 6 Shadow 5-5 five five that uh, mills your opponent based on how many units you have. There's a Skywalk Enforcer, which is the 3 Felm 1-4 flying creature that likes curses. And then the rare is the Shingane Captain, which is the 6 Fire Fire 5-5 five five charge. Your other fire units gain plus 1, plus 1. So I picked the Shingane Captain here. I think it's the strongest card. Yeah, I think that's... I agree with that. Yeah, a 5-5 five, five charge for 6s is, is generally pretty good in this format. Uh, I think if it wasn't in the pack, I'd probably look at the Sadistic Glee. I'm pretty high on that card lately. I think it's... Yeah, strong. that's where I was kind of too. We'll probably see more of these, but the other card I, that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is uh, Sinister Opportunist, which is the one primal 1-1 one, one ultimate pay three to give sinister opportunist plus four or plus three plus three if you have if a an enemy is cursed i just see so many of these get passed to me and it feels like this could be a deck i've just never been brave enough to try to put it together because i know like there's a lot of cards like this that are bad like muck crawler for example yeah but the fact that this is a permanent buff and a cursing a unit doesn't seem that hard to do um, feels like there could be some aggressive, you know, so then it's closer to a Xenon life speaker that, you know, it doesn't give anything life steal or anything, but, you know, it's kind of closer to that power level. Yeah, I've but I don't really see it very often and I've, I've never been brave enough to try to like build a deck around six of these which i feel like i could sometimes get if i wanted to yeah <laughs> i i think that's the situation with it is that you don't want to pick it up too early because it's difficult to know if you're going to have enough curses to make it worth it mm -hmm. um and then I, I i will put misery walkers in a deck if i've only got a couple of curses um because at least it's a two three and it's not the absolute worst to play a two three for three but it is absolutely the worst to play a 1-1 one, one for one that never gets to grow. And so I'm less likely to put a Sinister Opportunist in a deck that doesn't have a lot of curses in it. So, yeah. uh, But I've, I've had them in decks before and they've been good because they are, they're, I mean, you know, a 4-4 four, four with, with charge, which is basically what it is on the turn when you make it grow, is, is pretty good. Um, so uh, it's kind of a thing where if you start seeing a bunch go by and the packs are otherwise weak, then yeah, sure, pick them up because maybe you'll end up in a curse deck because those do still exist. But especially because most of the good curses are usually going to be in packs two and three, you don't know if you're going to see them or not. Yeah, and I, I just have a tendency not to put enough curses in my deck to make a curse right. deck work. I think it's one of those cards sort of like Sort of like the 4-4 Yeti with, 
uh, with Bond, uh, where it, it's not it's 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 fine to pick up a couple like in the first pack because uh, maybe Yetis will work out or whatever. But if they don't, be prepared to cut them. And I think that's kind of, it's similar with Sinister Opportunist, except it's not as powerful a card. So don't think that I'm equating the two. Uh, but it's I have a similar attitude towards them, where if you don't have the synergy, they suddenly become very unplayable. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think they're a bad card, and I do. I agree with you that they're underrated, and people are passing them, thinking they're completely unplayable. But they are. I mean, they're a four-four if if you have curses, which is not bad. Yeah. All right. So yeah, like I said, we took the Shingane t- captain. So going into pick two, uh, cards in contention. There is a defiance. There is an archive curator, a cobalt coin, a static bolt. I think those are. Uh, the best cards in the pack. And yeah. I took the Archive Curator here. Yeah, I think that's fine. That was that was my first instinct as well. I do think Defiance is a good card, but Archive Curator, like it always has, solves a lot of problems and then is a flyer that blocks well. So it's a good, good card. Yes. It solves more problems than Defiance does. It's not as efficient. Um, but it's it's nice to have, and you're not as sort of like early in the format. You could get like a thousand Grodov's favorites in your deck if you wanted them because people were just passing them. But it's not true anymore. So having Archive Curator is a is is a good substitute for that Grodov's favorite. Yes, um, and that and it also costs less. It's a very powerful card. All right, so pick three cards of contention. There is a Repulsive Gorger, which is the seven Shadow Shadow seven four. Summon, you may sacrifice a unit to give enemy units minus one, minus one. Uh, there's Teriax Hatchling, Ornamental Dagger, and a Cambrai Insignia. So again, there's not a ton of great cards in here, so I'm just listing the ones that are even remotely, I think, in contention. Um, and so I took Teriax Hatchling out of this pack. Yeah, I, I thought that you might. I think that's probably fine, yeah. Uh, I do think Repulsive Gorger is awesome. Um, and I am sort of predisposed towards being in shadow so much that I would probably take it here. But, uh, uh, and I, so I'm, the the other part of this is that I'm not as impressed with Teriak's Hatchling as a lot of people. And I it would take too long for me to explain why. I just haven't had very good luck with it. Um, no, I'm but, 100, I 100% agree. And yeah. this has actually been one of my main problems with this format is every single draft I end up with a third pick Teriax Hatchling and it like screws up the rest of my draft because yeah. I'm like, oh, this is everyone really likes this card. And so then it's always the nearly the best card in my second, third or fourth pick or whatever. And then I end up like with two or three of them. And in the games where I play that, if your opponent has any sort of board presence, you're playing these two ones for three that just cannot play defense at all. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I find myself having to block my opponent's two drops with my with my Terriax hatchlings all the time because otherwise I lose too much tempo, and they're terrible at doing that. <laughs> they cost too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's 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 two of them, but they're both bad. Uh, yeah. There's definitely times though where they are, are are ridiculous. There's no question that like immortalizing one is is fantastic and other things like that. But uh, you can't judge cards by how good they are with immortalize. Uh, yeah, I often do. And I I really think I've like come around to this idea that 
it's a card that you can have too many of and it's i think it's almost better i would rather not have them in my opening hand almost you know because i don't it's not a card that before the game is playing out that i'm like really comfortable like oh if i play this on turn three i'm going to win the game because very often if your opponent is the aggressor and all you have as your turn three play is a terry x hatchling you can be in a lot of trouble yeah, it's a poor tempo play. They're not a good tempo play, and so therefore you want to be drawing them later once you're at a board stall and you need a couple of flyers to peck away. Um, yeah. So yeah, I legitimately, because I've run into that situation so many times and been underwhelmed with the card, would probably pick up Gorger here because I've never been sad to to have Gorger in my deck. Yeah, that's also interesting because I think this Gorger is a card that not very many people like and you don't see get played very often. Is that um, true? I yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I think I've we've we've just I've we've discussed this card on the podcast. I don't remember with who exactly, and because it's a card that to me reads really strong. I mean, in this format in particular, I think there's a lot more sacrifice fodder, and there's mm-hmm. like some cards that you want to actively sacrifice. There's also a lot of cards that you want to give a permanent minus one minus one to. Yeah, uh, like all of the exalted critters and like other and your opponent's sacrifice fodder and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it I've I've always I've always loved the card. It's a very strong card. Um, right. Obviously, it costs seven, but it's uh, I don't know what else you want to do on turn seven other than play a giant monster and weaken your opponent's entire army. That's a great thing to do on turn seven. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and I'll then sacrifice maybe, my, my car Evangel to just wreck you. That's great. <laughs> and in this format, you know, like, we definitely know we can get to seven. You know, six and seven is a number that a lot of people are trying to get to in this format. So it's not like it's too expensive of a card either. All right. So you would have taken the Gorger probably. I took the Teriax Hatchling. So I think Ornamental Dagger is certainly worth considering, too. It's a good, versatile weapon. But I wouldn't take it over either one of those other two cards here. So then pack four, uh, cards in contention. There's the Xenon Fanatic, which is the four Shadow Shadow 3-1 Life Force. When you gain health that turn, deal that much damage to the opponent. Uh, there's a Tremor Shocker, uh, Sky Crew, maybe a Journeyman Armorer. And so I took the Tremor Shocker out of this pack. Yeah, I think it's an easy Tremor Shocker. Okay. Just a good solid meat and potatoes card. Yep, I agree. All right, so now we're going into pack f- or pick five cards of contention. There is an eviscerate and a voyaging lumen. And for those of you who don't know, the lumen is the six time five five life force at the end of your turn. If you gained life, play a one one wisp. And I don't have any shadow cards yet, but I did take the eviscerate. Yeah, I think in terms of power level, it's just better than the other cards in the pack. Voyaging Lumen is fine, but it's sort of a replaceable big beefy guy at six, and time doesn't have any trouble getting those. Yes. Uh, it kind of the only time you really want to play Voyaging Lumen is when you uh, don't manage to get those six drops, which does happen sometimes, but it, yeah. uh, it's rare. Because it, its effect when it, when the life force triggers uh, isn't that huge, unlike uh, the Radiant that makes a that makes a unit the size of the life that you gained. This right. just makes a 1-1 one, one Wisp. So pick six, cards in contention. So there were not a lot of... There's no fire card in this pack. 
The only time card is phase out. You know, I did pick up the eviscerate, and the only shadow card is banished umbrin, which is not great. Um, the, probably the strongest card is a slope sergeant. There's the Skywalk Enforcer, which is the Curse Matters card, which is pretty good, but it's pretty color committing, and I don't have. I'm kind of all over the place right now. And then there's the Token of Ambition and a Token of Instinct. I took the um, Token of Instinct out of this pack. Yeah, and with your deck, that's what I would do too. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think it, I think it makes your life easier because it'll it'll help you splash your Terriax hatchlings if you don't end up in Brimal. Um, I think that's the right choice. Mm-hmm. I, I think if the I think if you were a little bit more committed to Shadow for whatever reason at this point, then Skywalk Enforcer would be defendable. I think it's general like Skywalk Enforcer uh, as a one four flyer for three is okay. Uh, it's already something that you would not often cut from your deck, and then with even one curse, it's an unholy terror. So I kind of like it. Yeah, it's a definitely a strong card. All right. Yep, so our drafts continue to diverge slightly. Only very uh, slightly, because I'm not even 100% on the... Rep- well, I guess I probably am 100% on the Gorger. I do like it. Pick seven here, cards in contention. There is a Combust, a Manufacturer, and a Topaz Drake. And so once again, there is no time card. There's the Manufacturer and Iceberg Scattershot. And there's no straight Shadow card either. So I, I just... Pick the combust out of here. I think that's fine. It's just sort of not a good pack, but there is a chance that you would play the combust. Yeah. Uh, especially because the colors that you have going on so far, it's uh, kind of some time and and maybe some fire, although that was your first pick and you might want to get away from it. Uh, but if you did end up playing time, shadow, and fire, that tends to be sort of a sacrifice kind of deck. And uh, then you would play, end up playing the combust. Is there any argument for me to take like a Topaz Drake here? Um, no, I've never seen anyone play a Topaz Drake, so I'm not sure what to <laughs> say about it. It doesn't look like a terrible card, but uh, I've just never seen anyone ever play it. Uh, yeah. So it's hard to evaluate. Oh, uh, that's uh, Barefoot Farmer uh, Ruben used to be really high on this card. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, I feel like is... there's so many big flyers that it yeah. has. There's so many flyers in this format that can kill this that it seems like you're paying a lot for yeah it feels like it would it feels like it would run into a lot of marsh like three six marsh drakes you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just i've i've certainly toyed with the idea of playing uh topaz drake uh in the in the aggressive skycrag lists i've had but then it always seemed like there was a better thing to do when at the top end yeah um such as the hellkite you know that you get in Flames of Zalta, the 7-4 that immediately smashes your opponent for damage equal to the number of units you have. Yeah, uh, which is very similar to the charge on Topaz Drake. It is. It's similar to that, but it's also unblockable. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, I, I I think because you're not really uh, in fire for sure at this point, and you would need to also be in Primal, that it's a kind of a tough pick here. I mean, I think Combust is just probably the more powerful card. Because I'm not really in Shadow or Fire either. But yeah, the time true. seems to be pretty cut. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a tough... It's just kind of a tough pick, honestly. Yeah. So um, I took the Combust. Um, and I support that. So then going into pick eight, cards in contention. There's the Cabal Bludgeoneer. There's a Rally. And there's a Learned Herbalist. 
So I took the learned herbalist because I like my time cards the best, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's also the strongest card in the pack. There's also like a rally, which is uh, very good in some decks, but it's not usually an early pickup unless you're sure you're a token deck. Um, yeah. And also you don't have any weapons for Legendary, and sometimes you just don't end up with good weapons, and then it's yeah. just a 3-3 three, three for 4. I love the card, but uh, you can't play it in every deck. Yeah, and so even if you're heavier shadow, you wouldn't pick the Bludgeoneer then. Uh, pro- well, let's see. I'm looking back at the picks to see if I passed a bunch of shadow because I've started to believe a lot more strongly in that in that weird algorithm thing. Because I've noticed that if I completely cut a faction, that I often am paid off for it. And until I start seeing some evidence that that's not happening, I'm going to act <laughs> like it is. <laughs> uh, if I made my my picks the way I wanted. I've still got an archive curator and a tremor shocker, so I'd probably just take the herbalist here in case time is open in pack two. Yeah. Um, then I'm, and also, like sometimes you end up you don't get to to choose two factions that are really strong, and herbalist is helps you splash, and you're probably going to want to splash your Terriax hatchlings anyway. So you know you're 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 it's it's a it's the right pick. All right. All right, and then we're going to go a little deeper into this one pack. Pick nine, cards in contention. There's only a journeyman armorer and an affliction. For me, I took the journeyman armorer over the affliction. I don't think journeyman armorer is like a great card, but and I don't know if I'm in fire yet, but this is one of those cards where it's just like two medium cards, so I'm just like never sure which <laughs> what to do in these situations. I usually default to the one faction card, especially if I haven't worked out my factions. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Journeyman Armor is a fine card, but uh, I think it's a lot worse in, in decks that aren't very aggressive. Like, if I'm in a big Praxis deck, like, I sort of feel almost obligated to play Journeyman Armor because it's the two-faction card in my factions. But I'm not, I'm not usually, like, thrilled about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not usually thrilled to play an Affliction either, but I do find that it synergizes with enough stuff that I'm likely to get in Flames of Zulta that um, it's fairly likely that I'm going to play it. I think it's worth talking about Cowardice a little bit too. Uh, not with the deck that you're drafting here. It, you need a pretty aggressive deck, but Cowardice is hard removal if you're going to be attacking every turn. This is like your Topaz deck where I've never seen anyone play it, nor would I, nor have I ever put it in my deck. Yeah, no, I know. I've put it in my decks. I've put it in my aggressive Stone Scar decks. It's awesome in those. <laughs> <laughs> it's just removal for two in those decks. Uh, yeah. It's not. It's not. If you're planning to play like a mid-range game, then it's only partial removal, and it's not that great. Uh, but it's very. It's a very efficient way of getting rid of a, a blocker permanently if that's your your game plan. Um, I've had. I haven't had as much luck drafting extremely aggressive decks as I did uh, a couple of weeks ago, though. So uh, uh, I wouldn't actually pick it here, but. It's just not a card that you want to completely discount if you happen to be in the right deck for it. Just one of those th- one of those cards. All right, and then sort of the final pick that I want to talk about, uh, cards in contention. Uh, I'll just read it. There's only three cards here. The cards are there's a manufacturer, a rampage, and a token of knowledge. I took the token of knowledge here, and I, rampage is, I think, a, a very strong card. This is This is just, I think, indicative of how I feel like my pack ones go where I'm just like not feeling like I'm anywhere yet. And so I just thought I should take the token of knowledge because I do have a card in all three of those colors and it would leave me more open and more options, even though I am, even though rampage is a pretty good card, but 
I mean, I th- I can I can see an argument for either one, honestly. Uh, it is good to have some fixing, but I, the tokens to me feel like not that great fixing. So I don't know. I, I they, it leaves you more open. It's probably the more responsible pick, but Rampage is a much more powerful. And so uh, I guess the other factor is that there Rampage is is a powerful card, but um, there's you kind of end up with a lot of ways to make your units a little bit bigger. Uh, especially with the decimate version of it, it doesn't give the two one boost card. Uh, I, I can't remember the names of any cards Desperate today. Ga- or Desperate, Desperate Gambit. Gambit. Desperate Gambit. Desperate Gambit is kind of a similar card to this. It serves a similar function, but it also has the decimate, and you're very likely to pick up one if you if you want it. It doesn't give the overwhelm, so it doesn't have that sort of instant kill factor. But uh, it's made me less likely to pick up rampages because there's such a similar effect uh, mm-hmm. throughout the draft. So. Um, I don't know here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess at this point, like you've seen a lot of support for red tokens actually in the last couple of picks, which is normal because no one wants to pick those manufacturers, uh, uh, manufacturers or rallies early on. And then the one person that does like wins all of their games. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but you're not in that deck. Uh, you've always had other cards to pick. So I think the token's fine. Yeah. I mean, the tokens, it gives you flexibility. I don't know why, even why I'm going into it. I think token is a fine pick there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, this one was weirdly tough for me because I think Rampage is yeah, a yeah. pretty strong card. You know, it's not like, if it was like manufacturer token in the back, then I would take the token. It felt like I was giving up on a strong card, but I just felt like I was not guaranteed to be in fire yet and so so then i closed out the pack i got another token this time a token of ambition as well as a mining team so like i keep saying i'm kind of all over the all over the place my time cards are learned herbalist archive curator tremor shocker i have uh fire cards a mining team a shingane captain i have an eviscerate and then for my multicolored cards, I have a Journeyman Armor, which is Praxis, a Teriak Hatchling, which is a Lesion, and a Combust, which is Stone Scar. And then I have three tokens. And uh, none of the cards are really, like, screaming at me. is like, really great. Nope, that's true. Well, there weren't any really great cards within that whole pack, and that'll happen pretty often, really. All right, so then uh, we're now into the Flame of Zolta packs. Uh, so Cards in Contention... There's a Zenza, which is the rare, which is the Xenon, um, the two Xenon 2-2, two, two, um, where if you mill a card each turn, and if you mill, if a cultist goes to your void, you gain plus one, plus one, and one health. And, and there's also a Grodov's Favored in this pack. I don't think Zenza's like really in contention this early in a pack like you have to have some pretty serious synergy before it turns into a good card yeah i just wanted to give people a comparison of of the rare i didn't mention there's actually a a few other pretty good cards in this pack but grodos favored i think is a great upon is the best common so so pick two of the pack uh there is a dread hellkite and another grodos favored yeah, and even if I were heavily more heavily in shadow at this point, I would still take the Grodov's favored because I wouldn't have a very aggressive deck, and Dread Hellkite's better in those for sure. Okay. Although this is a shiny Dread Hellkite, isn't it? Yeah, it is beautiful. Actually, it was the first yeah. time I saw a shiny Dread Hellkite. I was very impressed. Yeah, like the dragons in this set are like electric dragons. <laughs> yeah, 
So uh, if that means anything to you, that you, that was an option, but mm-hmm. I did take the Gordas favored. The person that was passing me took the, the rare is missing, so there's nothing really to be gleaned from that. All right, so then pick three of pack two, cards in contention. There is the Skyfire Hellkite, which is the seven firefire, seven four flying dragon that shoots people. There's a Skyhorror Draconis, a Cindermoa Toda, and then the only time card is an Ardent Convert. Um, and the cards missing from this pack are a rare and an uncommon. Well, with your deck, I'm pretty sure I would go for the Skyfire Hellkite here. Yep, and that's what I did. I went with the Skyfire Hellkite. I've had, as an archetype, Big Praxis seems very strong in this format. So okay. I would say that when if you see that the deck is starting to turn into that, that's fine. Lean into it. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing that was like kind of making me hesitant about that is I already have four six drops mm-hmm. and a well, tremor shocker is sort of a six drop yeah it is and it's hard for me to like evaluate whether skyfire hellkite is like an aggressive card or like you were saying a big praxis card or maybe it's both i think it works in both yeah. i think it's a good finisher for an aggressive deck uh and it's also fine in big praxis because the the idea behind Big Praxis is that you kind of overload your opponent's resources gradually once you reach six six power, like you 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 match them or take maybe a small loss in the turns leading up to six, and then from turn six on, everything you do requires a lot of your opponent's resources to deal with, and Hellkite requires a lot of your opponent's resources, especially if you've already been attacking them with Grodov's favorites and that kind of thing. Uh, right. So. You want to, uh, I mean, sometimes it just takes one thing to, to block it or take it down, but they probably don't have that thing because they've been dealing with the other stuff you've been doing. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it works fine for that function. Okay. And it puts that pressure on because they suddenly have less life than they expected to have. All right, so then uh, pick four, cards in contention. There is a draw strength here. There is a, the only time card is a proselytize. Once again, not great. Um, and then the two fire cards are Desperate Gambit and A Living Memory. And uh, none of the shadow cards are, are particularly good for this deck. A Living Mountain, I think. You said Living Memory. Oh, Living Mountain, sorry. Yeah, not a great pick. <laughs> um, I guess I guess you probably go with Desperate Gambit, but I don't like it a lot here. Okay, so I took the draw strength. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess yeah. I guess you can splash. I I I wasn't thinking about. You do have a token of ambition, so it wouldn't be the hardest thing to splash for. Yeah, draw strength is fine. Yeah, and I guess I was also thinking like right now my shadow cards are a combust, and I guess you know combust would be very splashable in uh, a praxis list. Eviscerate less so, but you know that combust could very easily turn into a draw strength and be like a fine single card splash that's why i took the draw strength because it seemed like a splashable card and it's i do have the sky fire hellkite and i guess you know fire seems to be open even though it's still pretty early in this pack too but i I was not committed to fire (laughs) just yet so i thought maybe if justice turned out to be really open you know it could be a, a i could pivot still I, I guess I, uh, I, and I'm not sure this is correct. I would try. I would be pushing at this point to try to figure out which of my uh, factions I'm definitely going to be in. Um, 
I'm not always super happy to be splashing a draw strength because <laughs> it like sometimes even though it scales well, sometimes you reach a point where having a single good combat trick doesn't really make that big of a difference in the game. And so sometimes that's what happens when you splash your draw strengths. But it's a much more powerful card than the other cards in the pack, so sure. And Living Mountain's not terrific with the stuff that you already have. So uh, it, it it's happier in a, in a more aggressive or mastery-focused deck, and you just don't have those sort of cards yet. And Desperate Gambit's not really that good. <laughs> <laughs> I was comparing it to Rampage before. Rampage isn't that good in this format either. It's fine, but I, I find myself cutting it often. Okay. So yeah, I did take the draw strength, though Desperate Gambit, I guess, is in contention. And this next pick, not a great justice card. There's a, a Rent Seeker. Um, the fire card in this pack is Slayer's Edge, and there's an Ancient Manual, and then there is a bunch of dual faction cards that aren't in clo- even close to my factions, really. Yeah. Um, so I took the Slayer's Edge. I would, too. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that it can kill. Not super efficiently, but efficiently enough. These next two picks, actually, I want to hear your opinion about. So this is now pick um, six into pack two. Cards of Contention, there's that green stretch empath that I'm always talking about. There is an eager offering... There is a Cinder Toda and a Living Mountain. And so I took the Eager Offering out of this pack. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a very good card, and it's especially good with the deck that you've got going where you, you don't, you're you not going to end up with the strongest early game and you need a good transition to your sure. later game. And Eager Offering is good at both of those things, is it? Uh, I know. I think a lot of people don't block with the eager offering, but it's fine to <laughs> block with eager offering, yeah. uh, even if they have a trick and 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 you don't get to draw your cards. Like you drew a trick out of their hand, that's fine. Um, yes. And it, it's it's just generally a pretty strong card, so I'm I'm happy to see it if I'm already in time most of the time. Even in a even in an aggressive deck, it's fine. It, it's like drawing two cards is a good effect. Here's a problem I have in this format a lot. When I end a draft, I always wish I had more Cinder Totas in my deck. <laughs> but like problems in, capture. <laughs> in the draft, I never I never it's, it never feels like the best card in the pack. But there's just so often where I end the draft draft with like two souls fury and zero cinder Totas. and i'm like oh man i really wish i had like a cinder Toda or something in this draft but i but during the draft i i never feel like i could pick this up and this is actually a theme that happened in this draft where i ended the draft wished i had another cinder Toda, and probably six of them went by me but it just was like never felt like the best card in the pack so I don't know if that's an experience you have or... Uh, yeah, it certainly happened. I'll sometimes end up with like two Souls Furies and two Combusts, and I just don't have enough units that I want to sacrifice. And I've definitely seen Cinder Matotas go by, but uh, I think it's a card where it feels great if you actually use it the way it's intended and not so great if you don't. So it's mm-hmm. not like... It's not like weird that you don't end up with them in your deck. I don't think that you're that you're prioritizing them poorly. Um, but if you do end up with things that need, that need sacrifice fodder, then, then start to value them higher. Yeah. Um, because then they become the strongest card in the deck, you know, as yeah. their, as their value in your deck goes up. 
Yeah, the problem is that yeah, it's always too late by that time. I feel like sure. by the time by the time you get your tenth pick Souls Fury, you don't have time to <laughs> pick up a Cinder Matoda. So I did pick the Eager Offering out of that pack, and so we're not taking a flyer on the Green Stretch Empath here. No, I don't think that you have any support for it so far, uh, and then you would be sort of putting pressure on yourself to come up with that support. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think very, you're like I don't I don't think you're likely to get it with the with the draft the way it is. You're a very sort of unit focused deck. All right, and then so pick seven uh, cards of contention. The two fire cards. There's a Rel- relentless combatant and a desperate gambit. There's no time cards <laughs> still. And then for shadow, there is a sunset priest and a marsh dragon. And there is no uh, justice cards except for a Rugen. Rujin's choice. Out of this pack, I took the um, the Marsh Dragon. Um, I mean, you're unlikely to play Shadow at this point, but uh, Marsh Dragon's fine. Since I had that one piece of fixing, and I don't know, I'm also I never really play Desperate Gambit, and I really try not to play Relentless Combatant. Yeah. So I I take a lot of flyers on uh, other cards in this situation. Yeah, it's fine. Yes. And like okay. I said, if you did end up in Shadow Time and, and Fire, you'd have probably a sacrifice sort of a deck, and so the Marsh Dragon would be good. I've ended up with too many Marsh Dragons in a couple of my decks where I, I simply don't have the food for them. Yes, uh, that has you. definitely happened to me too. And then um, for the rest of the picks, like this next pack has zero Fire cards, zero Time cards, and zero Shadow cards. <laughs> And then, so I picked a primal card. And then the mm-hmm. next four picks to fill out this pack were more or less all primal cards. And so I really ended this pack two feeling a little unsure of myself. But I was just wondering kind of like where y- your mind might be at the end of the pack two. Like, do the, do, does the fact for the last five picks you saw zero cards in your colors... Yeah, I don't know how worried I would be. I didn't see a strong reason to. So, like, like take a look at this uh, this pack that had the Marsh Dragon and the Sunset Priest. That looks yes. kind of like a shadow signal, except that the pack before had no shadow cards, and the right. pack before had no shadow cards, <laughs> and the pack before had Recon and Malaise. You know, it's not like the other colors are dramatically open. Uh, yes. like the cards in some of these packs are like cards that just nobody wanted and there it's regardless of faction that happens a lot, especially like halfway through the pack suddenly, like, especially in like packs two and one and you'll get people still just sort of trying to figure out their factions and that messes up all the signals all the way down the line. So yeah. that's fine. That's normal. Uh, I mean, it, you, you'd rather get a stronger signal for sure and those are the decks that end up being really 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 good is where you get your signals worked out earlier but um i wouldn't be worried at this point that you're not going to have enough playables you're well on your way to having enough playables okay yeah and so then i ended up kind of like what we talked about in a big praxis deck um i did decide to try to splash shadow i for just Marsh Dragon and Combust, and with that I have uh, two tokens of ambition to help me do that. And my one question is, is Eviscerate ever like a splashable card? Like, how much... I also have a Bannerman to help with that, um, with the splash, and a Seek Power. And so, like, with 
a bannerman, a seek power, two tokens of ambition is like a double shadow card, a splashable card. Do you ever look at the website that works out the math on these things? Shiftstoned. Uh, Shiftstoned. I, I do not. I, I play with, uh, totally through gut. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, it's also uh, it's interesting because you are a person who is based a podcast on a spreadsheet. But, um, <laughs> but I draw the line at building a power base. Stone is a useful uh, is is a useful thing to look at the percentages for something like that, and yeah. uh, even if you don't use it regularly, like you can get a better idea of of how of how likely it is that you'll be able to play a a, a double influence card that you're splashing in a reasonable amount of time. Eviscerate doesn't go out of style, you know. As soon as you get the influence to play it, then you'll you'll be able then uh, it'll be useful. Unlike a lot of splashable cards, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, let's see, how many sources of shadow do you have? Because I would want like six anyway before I splash and eviscerate. Well, I, it depends on how desperate you get. Because I do have two tokens of ambition. I have a token of knowledge. I have a seek power and a bannerman and, and a learned herbalist. Add, yeah, so you would add the one shadow sigil for the learned herbalist. Yeah, I think it's fine. Because also you're not really a tempo deck, so you're not going to be too worried about playing all of these cards on curve. You'll be able to get your your power to, and you've got this the two mining teams to sort of smooth things out. So yeah, I'd probably play Eviscerate here. I probably okay. wouldn't. I probably wouldn't also play the draw strength though. I think that's. I think I don't think it's worth playing four colors. If you're yeah. going to end up losing to your own deck too often. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and actually in the final version, I dropped the draw strength and I dropped the eviscerate to try to make the power base cleaner. I don't think that I can work out in my head whether that's yeah. definitely going to work here right now, but um, it looks to me like you could play the eviscerate here just because you've got so much fixing. But it's definitely a risk because there will be a time there will there will be like at least one game where you draw the shadow sigil <laughs> and and no time or something like that, but. I mean, I joked about it, but that's one of the reasons I don't look at Shiftstone is because power bases in Limited are just so bad naturally that it's almost too depressing to look at. Because okay. it's like, even in your, like, your main colors, you're like, feels like you're like, turn two, I'm 80% to draw it. And I'm like, but that's my main color. <laughs> and uh-huh. it's like, was I telling you about the Reality Breaker deck off? Or was that after? Was that when I was talking about my draft week? I think I was talking about it at, before we started recording. Uh, so the, the the two Reality Breaker deck that I had earlier today, I actually this was the first one that I put through Shift Stone, actually. So I wanted to know how likely I was to actually play a Reality Breaker on 8. Um, and the percentages weren't great. And so I just sort of massaged numbers uh, it's how I ended up with 20 power for the deck. I was like, this is acceptable now. Uh, like, this is going to happen consistently. Um, and and it helped a lot. Uh, uh, even though I knew that, it, like, I was stretching the chances of me being able to play all of my cards. Like, I dropped a few cards and put some cards in. And uh, it gave me a better sense for how to do that without looking at the Shift Stone numbers. So I think it's a valuable resource. If anybody doesn't know about it, Shift Stone, uh, can, you can import a deck that you're that you're working on it will tell you how likely you are to have the power you need to play your cards on the appropriate turns. Just a warning: be very prepared for very low numbers. Yeah, they're lower than you think. Uh, yeah. But if you're paying attention to how your games go, 
with it's it factors in those uh those times when your power screwed and you know like those times are part of the percentages you know and those yeah. happen they happen more than you want them to and that's just because that's because your numbers are lower than you think they are yeah exactly as long All as right. you can face the truth it's a valuable valuable thing to know yeah, stuff your brain that. with knowledge <laughs> Sad i would call knowledge. that one of my strong suits uh <laughs> So uh, I think we've managed to have our longest episode ever. <laughs> I think this is the longest one with the least material when we were starting out. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's our show. Uh, thanks again to all our patrons for making the show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Join us in our Discord. There's a link in the show notes. And thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts so more people can hear about this show. And listen to these this hours and hours of content that we that we release every every single week, more or less. And don't forget to send in all seven wind deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Happy drafting. Happy draft.